first thing I want to do is uh, set you on alert that uh, this past week I've been wrestling with that weird viral cold that's been going around that just hammers you and you cough and cough and cough. And so um, right now I am totally jacked up on cold medicine and I'm setting you on alert. If something awkward happens, like I suddenly randomly become incoherent or I fall over or start hacking. Um, I have a chair up here in case I you know, go weak to the knees. So what I want you to do is I want you to just ignore that. We're going <laughs> to pretend it never happened, all right? That's the way it's going to go. We have an amazing week in front of us, don't we? We're heading into Good Friday, 32 hours of prayer, Easter Sunday. And by the way, I've had a personal revelation. I just want to let you know that the risen Lord Jesus will be making a personal appearance at River West Church between 2 a.m. <laughs> and 6 a.m. on one of these nights. I, I wasn't told which, so I'm just making that up, but um, I just want to throw it in there for good measure. This week is called Passion Week, and I love that because the word passion, if you look in the dictionary, you'll get a couple of definitions, but one of them is, is love, a passionate love. But the other is, isn't this weird, to suffer. So love and suffering. And the word passion can point in both of those directions. And no doubt that actually comes from the fact that we call this week Passion Week because it is the week of Christ's suffering, but it is also the greatest demonstration of God's love that we can ever see. So I love that it's called Passion Week. And we want to enter into this week, which is considered the epicenter of Christian faith, the epicenter of the gospel, the things which are truly most significant when it comes to the gospel of Christ find their home in this week, this one week period of time, especially as we look to the death and resurrection of Christ. So it's a super important week. We want to enter into it. And we want to um, be fully involved. And so what I'm going to do this morning is set the stage for all of this with one crucial point. All right, this is the point. This is the takeaway for this morning. If you want to experience the true living power of the gospel of Christ, you have to make it personal. All right, that's the headline. If you want to experience the, the power, the living power of the gospel of Christ, you simply have to make it personal. It cannot be simply a history lesson. It cannot be just a remembrance of something that happened in the past or a point of Christian theology. It has to be, become something that's personal in our own lives in order for us to feel its power. And that is exactly what happened in the gospel story that we're going to be reading this morning, a great crowd of people began to worship and praise Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday morning. And I can guarantee you, as you read the story, you're going to see that for them, for these people, it actually was deeply personal. So let's do this. Let's read about it in Luke chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 28, and I'll read through verse 41, and then we'll unpack this story. Verse 28, when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage 
and Bethany. At the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent away found it just as, had, as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying that colt? And he said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus upon it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, that's an amazing story. That's an amazing picture, which is given to us. And what I'd like to do this morning is, I'd like to do two things. First, I'd like to ex just explore this story with you. I want to enter the story. I want to picture this with you and try to understand what's going on. And then after that, I want to take a few minutes and simply make it personal. Okay, so when I read this story, I, I think in my mind, what I see is what I consider to be a moment of spontaneous worship and praise, unlike we've ever seen anywhere in the Gospels before this. In fact, I would go on to say it's a moment of spontaneous worship and praise, unlike anything that it had ever happened in the history of the world up to that point, all right? Now, that's a bold statement. So let me unpack that by going through some of the things that we know about this scene, about this picture, about what happened. I'm going to share five things with you that we know about this incredible moment. The first thing is this. We know that it took place exactly one week before the miracle of Christ's resurrection on Easter Sunday. So this is Palm Sunday, and we know from the chronology of the Gospels that you go, from, you go from Sunday to Sunday. You go Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday. So everything that's going to happen in between these two Sundays is, is momentous. In fact, it's so momentous that this Palm Sunday episode is recorded in all four of the Gospels in great detail. And not only that, we know that the action sort of slows down. You get to Palm Sunday, and all of a sudden we have tremendous detail taking place in this week, so much so that the Gospels themselves seem to just stretch out to accommodate this telling of Passion Week. Think about this. Gospel of John, Palm Sunday comes in chapter 12, right? So now how many chapters are in John, you Bible scholars? 21, right? There's 21 chapters in John. 
So if, if you get to Palm Sunday in chapter 12, which is barely over halfway through the Gospel of John, what you get, you get to Palm Sunday just over halfway through the Gospel of John. Put it like this. The first three and a half years of the ministry of Christ in the Gospel of John, they happen in 12 chapters, the first 12 chapters. The rest of the book, 13 through, basically 13 through 20, takes, all takes place in three and a half days. One week, but actually he breaks it down three and a half days. Now when the Bible slows down like that, it sets us on alert. Something hugely significant is taking place. And we need to pay attention to every detail in the story. I can guarantee you that the people in this Palm Sunday story, in this crowd, sensed the significance, the power of this moment. They knew something was up. They knew something tremendous was happening. They didn't know exactly what, but the momentum had been building and building and building, and now they, and all of a sudden the thing just sort of explodes on the scene. Truly momentous for them and for us. Here's something else we know about this moment. We know that praise and worship burst forth suddenly and spontaneously from an incredibly large crowd. So we have to picture this scene. Go into chapter 19 and verse 37. As Jesus was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So we learn a couple things in this verse. One, we learn that there's an entire multitude. Now sometimes, you know, if you've been around church, you see Palm Sunday imagery, and it might be, you know, the focus, like the lens goes in on Jesus, he's on the donkey, there's people with palm branches, might be some children, they're putting down palm branches and everything, and people are saying, Hosanna, and you like get this close-up shot, which is awesome, and that's great, but the thing is, to really get the picture, you have to pull the lens back and understand there are thousands of people. This is a gigantic multitude of people, and then... They cry out with a loud voice. You see where it says that? In verse 37, they begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. And literally, it, there's two words in the Greek, mega and phone. You get it? Megaphone. <laughs> it's like a megaphone moment. It's like turn the amp up to, you know, 1,000 watts. Put it on 10. That's the, I believe that as they came down the Mount of Olives... And if you know anything about geography, so Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, they're just side by side. You know, you can look, you can look from the Mount of Olives and you can look across the Kidron Valley and there you can see Jerusalem. You can see the Temple Mount and it's just not that far. And I think that as they began to come down and they see Jerusalem, they see the Temple Mount, Jesus is on the donkey and all of a sudden the people are getting worked up and spontaneously a roar happens. It's uncontainable praise and worship and joy, and it's loud. And I think all the people in Jerusalem could hear it. You know, they're looking up from their work going, what, what is that noise? Okay, that's what happened in that moment. It's amazing. So a couple of years ago, there was an eclipse that swept across the middle of our state. 
And it was an amazing experience. And for those of you who were lucky enough to be the few of us <laughs> who saw the 100%, I can't speak for those who saw 95 or 99%. I can't speak for you. But I can tell you the 100%ers. It was an amazing experience, and I had heard that when an eclipse happens, that there is a sort of a collective gasp of, of the people. As that shadow comes looming across the horizon at whatever, it's like 1,200 miles an hour or something, just the shadow is coming. And it's, it's something that's like an involuntary reaction. People yell out at this, and that's what happened. We were in Black Butte in this field, and in the field, there's hundreds of people. And as this thing swept across us, everybody just started yelling. Ah, and people just couldn't, they're just, and it was like this big, loud sound. Now, we happened to have a guy who was there, and he was an eclipse expert. I don't know how you get to be that guy. But he, that's what his gig was. He was the eclipse expert. And he had personally been at like seven eclipses, of, I don't remember how many, 14, he was a chaser. You go around the world. And he told the story of being on the beach in Indonesia when there were 10,000 people during a total eclipse. And it swept across the ocean, across the beach. And he said the people, did, did, they did the gasp. They did the yell. 10,000 people on the beach just yelling, you know, involuntarily because of the majesty of what happened. Can I tell you something about this moment in the life of Jesus? It's like the reverse of the eclipse. Instead of a wave of darkness sweeping over the people, it was like a wave of light. It's like the sunrise, where these people, all of a sudden, they start to recognize something incredible is happening here. Something life-changing, something world-changing is actually happening. I get to be a part of it. And that's why they praised him. That's why they worshiped him. And it was like they just got swept up in the light of Jesus, and it was uncontrollable, and they just begin to scream out. I love that. Here's something else we know. We know that for these people in this crowd, it was personal. It was personal. This isn't just a theology lesson. It wasn't just a history lesson. This was deeply personal to them. Now, why would I say that? Take a look at the text again in verse 37 as he was drawing near. Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of who? His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for what? For all the mighty works that they had seen. We want to linger over this verse just for a minute. Who are these people? These are disciples. These are Christ followers. Why are they with him? Because they've seen amazing things. There's a group of people who they've taken some time off work. They, they're actually away from home. They're out on the road with Jesus. Why? Because they've seen amazing things. You know, the Bible tells us in the Gospel of Luke, starting in chapter 9, it actually begins what we call the travel narrative, where Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And, and then through 10 chapters, Jesus is just traveling, traveling, traveling on his way to this moment, on his way to Jerusalem. And along the way, what is he doing? Well, he's doing what he always did. He's teaching. He's loving, hurting people. He's healing the sick. He's casting out 
demons. He even raised the dead. All of these things are happening. And you know, a lot of times Jesus told people, don't tell anybody. Just don't tell anybody. But what did the people do anyway? <laughs> they went and they told everybody. And the people would say, can I follow you? He'd say, now you need to go home. Go back to your hometown, your own village. Tell everybody what God is doing. And some of them went back. But you know what? Like a magnet, more and more and more people began to join the entourage, began to join the Jesus movement. And you know who these people were? These are people who had broken lives that were now restored by Jesus. People who carried a weight of sin and their sins had been forgiven by Jesus. People oppressed by Satan and now they're free from the oppression of Satan. This is an excited crowd. This is a crowd that loves Jesus. And I can guarantee you, to them, it's personal. For everything they had experienced in their life. But here's something else that happened to these people. And I think it happened in this moment as this was going on. I think that it, suddenly they started to realize that something bigger was happening. If you take a look at verse 38, what were these people saying? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now they're talking about Jesus. And I think what they're realizing is they're sort of putting things together and they're going, you know what? There's something marvelous happening here that's beyond what we can even imagine. Jesus is coming as king. Jesus is entering Jerusalem as the king of Israel, the king of God's people. So the reason they're excited is because it's personal what they've received from Christ, but also who they personally believe Christ to be. Who they see Christ to be in that moment has them electrified. It's a moment of discovery to them, and that's why they praise him. They can't hold back. They're like, everything we've experienced and everything we believe Jesus to be, well, you can't keep your mouth shut. At that moment, that's what was going on. That's what we know about this incredible moment. And there's something else that we know about this moment. When Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem, it was highly unusual, but it was not completely unexpected. Okay, so it's highly unusual that Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem because Jesus essentially is coming as a king. And if you're coming as a king, the donkey doesn't seem to be the right image. This is not a good Instagram moment uh, with the donkey. It just doesn't seem to fit the occasion. So it's unusual, not to mention that it's never recorded that Jesus rode around on donkeys. He's walked everywhere, right? So this is highly unusual, and the donkey doesn't seem to fit the moment. There is a Jewish legend that 300 years before this, Alexander the Great rode into Jerusalem on his famous war horse, Bucephalus fans out there. Okay, Alexander the Great and his, his horse, all right? Amazing thing. Now, a lot of historians think this is just a legend. It never happened. Well, maybe it did happen. And if it did happen, it didn't look anything like this, I can guarantee you, because that's not the way that kings entered into the place. I have an artistic rendering of what Alexander the Great seated atop Bucephalus might have looked like. Now, you may notice that his sword has some blood on the tip of it, and that would actually be apropos for Alexander the Great, who 
was an amazing guy, some 300 years before Christ. At 20 years old, he became the ruling king of Macedonia in Greece. He had been personally tutored by Aristotle, which is kind of cool in and of itself. 20 years old, in the next 10 years, by the time he was 30, he had conquered so much real estate that he created the largest kingdom in the ancient world that stretched from Greece down to Egypt and all the way to India. He did that in 10 years, and he didn't have any battle tanks, all right? What did he have? Bucephalus <laughs> and a bunch of soldiers, and the guy was a genius, and it was amazing, right? So that is the image of a conquering king. But instead, we have Jesus on a donkey. So I have another graphic. I'm not super happy about this graphic, but I'm going to put it up there anyway. <laughs> because <laughs> the horse is too big. I mean, they know that's not a war horse. That's like a workhorse. That thing is, is the behemoth. That's amazing. And the donkey's probably too small because, you know, it's, it's like a baby donkey or something. And I don't know. I find the whole thing somewhat troubling. But let's take that down. <laughs> let's take it down. I just want to give you the contrast, okay? But I will say this. The donkey... The donkey is a young donkey. It's never been ridden on, it said. Okay, no one's ever sat on this donkey. This is a colt. It's just, it's just a young, and so it's a small donkey. Sometimes you see Palm Sunday art, and you'll see Jesus coming in in the palm branches and everything. And Jesus, it looks like he's on a miniature donkey. Have you ever noticed that? It's like, why is he on such a small donkey? Like, what is going on with the donkey? And what you realize is, well, it's actually a colt. It's a small donkey. So again, does the, like, what's up with that image, you know? This is the image that we have. And so I want you to think for a minute about this. It, it doesn't seem to fit. It's, it's highly unusual, and yet it's not totally unexpected. And the reason it's not totally unexpected is actually because there's a prophetic word from the Old Testament that talks about this moment. It's in the book of Zechariah. So if you have a Bible, you can look at Zechariah, or you can just look at the screen, and you'll see the verse up there. True to form, Luke does not give us the Scripture. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, those, you know, you really like to study the Gospels and see the differences. You see, Matthew kind of always gives us a verse. This was done to fulfill what was written by the prophet Zechariah, and then he'll give you the verse, right? But Luke doesn't do that. Luke just tells a story, and it's kind of like he's saying, you know, Take a look at this picture, guys, and, and doesn't that sound like something? And the Hebrew reader would go, yeah, that kind of sounds like Zechariah chapter 9. Here it is, Zechariah 9 in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, there's, there's verse 9. You got it? See the colt? See the donkey? Do you see the words humble in that verse? All right, hold that thought. Go to the next verse, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Well, who's he? It's, it's the guy on the donkey. That's who's going to do this. Okay, and it sounds like a big order here. He will speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. That's amazing. Two 
verses side by side, both about the same individual being promised, I wonder if you see the incredible paradox presented to us in these two verses side by side. It is the paradox of humility and absolute authority. It's in the text. It is the humility of the promised king, the lowliness of the promised king, and the absolute power and authority set side by side. Well, I think the people in the crowd started to get it. Now, you can be sure there were people there because these guys, you know, they had like the Bible memorized. They, they are sorting this out. It's what we call an acted parable. You know, sometimes Jesus taught parables and sometimes he just acted them out. And so if they're watching this, they're going, wait a minute, there's a message in this. And what is that message? And they're putting it together and they go, the king comes on a donkey. Now, I believe that most of the people in the crowd, their mind is going to verse 10. The king, he's coming in power. He's going to rule from the ends of the earth. All power and all authority is given to him. And they see that and they see Jesus on the donkey, but they just don't understand the depth of his humility. They do not understand the depth of gospel humility, but we do. We're on the other side of the cross. They did not know that the same humility that would put him on the back of that donkey is the same humility that would send him to a cross, where there he would die a death of great shame and loneliness. The donkey is just one step closer to his destiny, which is the cross the ultimate act of humility. The paradox of the kingship of Jesus is the paradox of ultimate humility and absolute authority and power. And that's the message of the gospel. And that's what we see. And that's why we worship him. One last thing that we know from this amazing moment, and this is all important. We know that every single thing that took place on that day was personally orchestrated by Jesus Christ himself. None of it was by accident. Jesus was in charge the whole way. It was Christ who orchestrated everything in this moment. How do I know that? Well, go back and look at your Bible. Take a look at, in Luke 19. What does it say in verse 28? When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He went ahead of them. Jesus wasn't in the midst of a crowd and everyone's like, hey, let's go up to Jerusalem. It'll be really cool. Jesus, you want to come? It wasn't like that. It wasn't people saying, hey, Jesus, we ought to go to Jerusalem and we'll put you on a donkey and we'll, we'll make you the king. It wasn't like that. Jesus went on ahead of them. Jesus led the way, every step of the way. And this is kind of the marvelous thing about the Gospel of Luke. You can go all the way back to chapter 9 and see where this journey started. In Luke 9, it tells us that Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Ten chapters, he goes, he goes, he goes, he goes. He leads the way. He leads this entourage of hurting and now blessed people with him. 
And he's absolutely determined. He knows what his goal is. It's Jesus who's leading the way. Jesus told his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem and there be rejected and suffer, beaten, crucified, and raised on the third day. And the disciples, many of them said, well, we don't really want to do that. (laughs) We don't want to go there. Jesus is like, sorry, that's what we're doing. Jesus led the way every step of the way. He had an appointment with destiny at the cross. Well, take a look at the story too. I mean, didn't it say in verse 30, Jesus sent two of his disciples, the end of verse 29. He said, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a cold tide on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord has need of it. Those who were sent went away. They found it just as was told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said, why are you untying the colt? And they said, well, the Lord has need on it. So they brought the colt to Jesus. They put Jesus on the colt. You know, sometimes in the Bible, when something's repeated a bunch of times, that means you're supposed to pay attention, right? (laughs) Jesus says, go in, go get the colt, untie the colt, bring the colt back. If they ask, tell them the Lord needs it. So they go, and what did they do? They untied what? The colt. And what did the owner say? Why are you untying the colt? What did they bring back to Jesus? The colt. Then what did they do? They sat Jesus on the colt. Uh, the colt? Oh, yeah. Zechariah 9. The colt. Who was it who orchestrated that whole thing? It was Jesus. Does Jesus know Zechariah 9 and 10? <laughs> you bet he does. Does Jesus know who he is? Does Jesus know what his mission is? Is Jesus going against his will? No way. This is the sovereign majesty of Jesus, our Savior, who is orchestrating everything step by step by step. And that's important. That's crucial for us to know. Hey, take a look at this. Here's another amazing thing to me. If you look at verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell him to stop. Isn't it amazing? Worship, loving Jesus, following Jesus seems to always cause conflict, controversy. Well, there it is. Tell him to stop. Tell him to shut up. Rebuke them. Scold them. What do you think is, you know, they know Zechariah 9 also. <laughs> They're like, nah, we don't, we don't think you're the guy. So here's what Jesus says. Now, this is an unusual saying. Nowhere else does Jesus say this. It's a one-time thing. Jesus says in verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Isn't that a great phrase? If these, if these disciples stop praising, the rocks are going to praise me. That's an unusual thing for Jesus to say because Jesus is the one who always said, you know, go home, just tell your family. No, don't tell people that you've been healed. Like, I'm not looking for that kind of publicity And now, Jesus has changed his tune. Why? Because Jesus knows what this moment means. Jesus has orchestrated the whole thing. Jesus showed up on time at the right place. He made it happen. And Jesus knows this is an earth-shattering, world-changing event. And he's letting them know that. You know, the Bible says that all of creation groans, waiting for the redemption 
of our physical bodies, our physical world. We live in a broken world, and that includes a physically broken world. And all of creation groans. I groan. I get a cold, and you know what I do? I groan. My wife, she says, you're the worst sick person ever. She's like, what is wrong with you? You have a few sniffles and a cough, and you're over there in the corner just moaning. What is wrong with you? And I'm like, it's in the Bible, honey. <laughs> it's biblical. All of creation groans. <laughs> I'm just groaning, you know. I'm waiting for the redemption of my body. Come, Jesus, kill me, take me or heal me. Anyway, so that's a whole other thing. All of creation groans, right? And Jesus, isn't it interesting? He says, if these disciples are quiet right now, all of creation, even the rocks, they're going to cry out in praise. Why? Because all of creation has been waiting for this moment. Jesus went to the cross. It's on the cross that all things are reconciled in heaven and on earth, all of it. And Jesus knows that. Okay, this is important stuff. Jesus is in control and guiding everything that happens. And so now, I just want to take a few minutes and make all this personal. Why do I want to do that? Because if you want to experience the true living power of the gospel of Christ, you have to make it personal. Okay, we have to make it personal, or else it's nothing more than a history lesson, right? So let's make it personal. Here's how the message of the gospel impacts my life this morning. My life. I'm going to say my life. In your bulletin, I, I had a title of something like, like this is why we praise him or something. And so I want to scratch out the word we and put I. <laughs> this is why I praise him, all right? This is the gospel for me and, it's, and the gospel for you too. This is why I praise the Lord. First of all, this, Jesus Christ was absolutely determined to suffer and to go to the cross because of his love for me. That's personal. Because it was love for me. It almost sounds like an outrageous thing to say. Like, how could you say that? You know, that it's for me. I don't think it's that outrageous. I actually think all of this is orchestrated. Here's another way to say it. All of this, Jesus orchestrated all of it. He orchestrated all of that for me. Is it too much to say that Jesus, in chapter 9, when he set his face like a flint and he says, okay, now I'm going to start my journey and I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I know that when I get there, I'll be rejected and abused and crucified and the third day risen and I'm orchestrating all of this and I'm doing it for Guy. All of it orchestrated for me. Jesus comes over the top of the Mount of Olives. There's a great throng behind him. He comes over the top. He sees Jerusalem, Temple Mount. He sees the place where he'll be crucified within a week. All of it orchestrated for me. That's when things get personal. This week I had a personal experience. It was totally unexpected. I've been studying in my own studies the, the book of Galatians. And so as I'm reading through the book of Galatians... I came to this verse. I'm going to read it to you. It's in Galatians chapter 2 and in verse 20. And I, and I just had this amazing experience. Galatians 2.20. The Apostle Paul now, so this is later after Easter, and the Apostle Paul is a missionary and that type of thing, writing to his churches. 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, look carefully, who loved me and gave himself for me. I was reading those words and all of a sudden that the words came to life. Paul says, he loved me. He gave himself for me. This is the Apostle Paul. He's a persecutor of Christians. He called himself in one of his letters, the chief sinner. But he says, but Christ, he loved me. And he gave himself for me. You know, gave himself, that's code for cross. That's code for he went to Jerusalem. He gave himself for our sins, says in Galatians 1, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Is it too much? Not for Paul. And I'm thinking, well, if it's not too much for Paul, why would it be too much for me to say he loved me? He gave himself for me. Can I apply these verses to myself? The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give himself as a ransom for many. Can I insert my name in that? Sure, I can. Jesus said in Luke 1910, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Can I insert my name there? See, that's when it becomes personal. This is what I believe about Jesus, and this is why I praise him. So if you believe this, you can't keep quiet. You know, you're not going to come to church and just sit on your hands and kind of go, oh, whatever. You're gonna, you need to worship the Lord. You know, this is bigger than an eclipse. This is world changing. Make it personal, my friends. Jesus went to the cross for you. Here's another way that I make it personal. Jesus Christ is the only king in all the world, in all history, who is worthy of my trust, my love, and my life. Jesus is my king. Jesus is worthy of my life, of my all, of my trust. Now, you know, we live in a culture where we don't like the idea of authority, right? It doesn't fly very well in our culture to submit yourself to an authority. And, you know, it's not hard to understand why, because we're savvy enough to know that authority is almost always misused and abused in this world. So we don't like leaders because our leaders always fail us. Isn't that the truth? You know, in Sudan... Three days ago, there was a military coup in which they deposed the president, which is a euphemism for dictator, who after 40 years in power is wants, or the, the, the uh, powers that be want to put him on trial for genocide. He's tortured his people, he's killed his people, and after 40 years, they got rid of him. There's dancing in the streets in Sudan because this guy is gone. And, you know, in the West, we look at that, we go, oh, that's so cool. You know, now maybe they'll have democracy, like true democracy. And we, and we think, yeah. And if they do, that, that'll make everything great. That'll be perfect, you know. Because democracy is the answer, right? It's the answer. In, in our world, if we could just bring democracy everywhere, and if every person could just vote, then all would be well with the world. Wrong. And when we look at Egypt, right, we look at Libya, we look at these places, 
It's because what happens is, is we just transfer the power from one person into the hands of a sinful mob. I'm, I'm being, you know, dramatic. But it's true. I mean, it's true in a way. It's, it's like every form of human government will fail us in the end. But we've never met a leader like Jesus. We've never met this humble king. A king who would go to the cross for those that he loves, and yet who has all authority and all power. There's no one like Jesus. He's the only one who's worthy that I could put my trust in and give my life to. And that's the gospel for me. And so how do you make it personal? You do that. You do that. You give your life to Jesus, your king, and be the greatest day of your life. Finally, the last point. Jesus calls for my response, and I must respond. Jesus is calling for a response. Now, you may notice that the people are crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We know from the other gospels they cried out, Hosanna. And there's this kind of an understanding that those same people that cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, just days later they were crying out, crucify him before he went to the cross. But that is a misunderstanding. It is not that crowd that cried out for Jesus to be crucified. It's a different crowd. These people came with Jesus from Galilee. They came with Jesus. They are followers of Jesus. They are lovers of Jesus. They hope in Jesus. <laughs> That's who this crowd is. But there's another crowd. And the Pharisees you know, kind of the ringleaders of that crowd. And they're like, tell your disciples to shut up. And the Pharisees are like, this is not the Messiah. This man is destroying our nation. And so there's two groups. And this is the way it is from the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, from the Song of Simeon, where Simeon said, this child is set to be a sign that will be spoken against, that the thoughts and intentions of many hearts will be revealed. Because Jesus causes a division, and he asks for a response from us. It's like Jesus comes into town and he says, you have two choices. You either crown me as king or you kill me. Those are the choices. And those were the choices. You crown him as king or you kill him. And it's, it's interesting. We can't escape this dilemma. And again, in our culture, nobody likes this kind of dilemma. It's like, what? I have to make a choice? Yeah, actually, we do. The gospel calls for your response to Jesus. What will you do with Jesus? I have a friend that I've had for many, many years. He used to be a pastor that I worked with down in Medford. And a wonderful man who's been through a lot of hard things. And occasionally he calls, and so he called just a couple days ago. And he was talking to me, and he said, I want you to know I, I had the opportunity to pray with my brother to receive Christ as his Savior. He said, it was just an amazing moment. Oh, well, tell me about it. He said, well, my brother's in the hospital, so I went to the hospital to see him. And I went to the, before I went in the room, I went to the doctor. And I said, doctor, I have two questions for you. Number one, is my brother dying? And the doctor said, yeah, yeah, your brother's dying. He said, okay, second question, does he know? And the doctor said, yes, he knows. And my friend said, that's all the information I need. And he walked into the room took his brother by the hand, and he said, you know I love you, and he said, I'm going to tell you something really important. You're going to die. You know it. 
And pretty soon, maybe within hours, you're going to be standing in front of Jesus Christ. Do you want to stand in front of Jesus Christ as your Savior or as your judge? And his eyes got wide. (laughs) And his brother said, I want Jesus to be my Savior. And so my friend was able to share the gospel with him, to lead him in a prayer. He received Christ as his Savior, and he baptized him there in the hospital bed. (laughs) It was a great moment. He came back the next day. His brother was still alive, and his brother was just talking about Jesus, talking about Jesus. And his his brother said, why didn't you ever tell me about this before? (laughs) My friends, I haven't been telling you for 40 years. (laughs) Oh, but, but now it's personal. And now it's personal. It's always been personal. You just didn't realize. But then at a certain point, you go, yeah, actually, this, this is real. This is personal. The gospel calls for a response from us. Now, we want to be those that respond, especially on Easter week, on Passion Week. Let's respond. Why do I praise him? I praise him because he determined to go to the cross for me. Why do I praise him? I praise him because he's a king like no other king in the history of the world, and he's worthy of me laying down my life and surrender to him and trusting him. Why do I praise him? I praise him because I have to make a choice. Everybody praises something. I praise him because he's my Lord, and he deserves that praise. Let's have the worship team come back up, and we're going to praise the Lord Jesus, and we're going to receive communion. Let's say a prayer right now. Thank you, Lord, for the wonder of the gospel, Lord. It's, it's the golden gift that heals our lives, Lord, because it brings us to Jesus and to salvation. And we ask now, Lord, that in this time of communion that you might meet with us, Lord, that our hearts might well up spontaneously with the praise that you are due, Lord. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.